Well, it is a privilege to be here this morning. I, I look out. Maybe I better put these on to look out. Yeah, that's better. I'm aging, but hey, so are you, just to let you know. I can tell. But anyway, I see a lot of old friends. I see a lot of familiar faces. I am thankful that I see a lot of faces I don't recognize as well. A lot of people that you're wondering who I am, and it's probably to my advantage that you don't know this morning. But we'll see how it goes. I was a former pastor here at Faith Church for about 12 years, and then the former pastor of Village Life Church, which was a daughter church of, of Faith Church. And uh, when Joey asked me to preach today, he was really upfront with me that this is the Sunday that no pastor really wants to preach. It's unofficially National Youth Pastor Gets to Preach Sunday today because all the pastors are pretty worn out from the busy holiday season and all the extra services that they do. And he told me he thought I qualified because I used to be a youth pastor here at Faith Church. So here I am. And I have to admit, I thought it was only fair because I've listened to the entire sermon series uh, that I'm, I'm kind of wrapping up today. I don't necessarily know that they know that, but I kind of am. But anyway, um, but I wasn't here. The last two weekends, I was in Cincinnati, where my extended family live, and I can tell you as a pastor of 18 years, what a treat to be able to just like take weekends and go see family and do things that some of you take for granted, and, and I got to see all of my nephews and nieces and some of their kids, and just it was a really great time, two weekends to hook up both with Joanne's family and my family, and of course, we exchanged gifts and all of that, but a big part of our getting together is the Christmas and holiday meals. And the big table that we set up. And that time around the table and how much fun it was. And so I couldn't help but to think of the table that you're using as an image for the metaphor of home. And the series that you've just done of how God created a home for us in Genesis. How we left that home. How we rebelled and how we were kicked out of that home, rightfully so in Genesis uh, chapter 3. And how Jesus amazingly left his home in order that he could come rescue us and that he could bring us back home to that future home. And so that's where we're kind of headed today. And, and Joey, when he was talking to me, said, well, maybe you could do a so what sermon, you know, at the end of that series. And I thought, well, that series is the storyline of the entire Bible, Maybe I ought to be able to think of something that's a so what consequence from it. I don't know. Maybe there's something, a thing or two. And as I thought about it, one thing became really dominant in my mind. And that's that Jesus' mission, his work on the cross to earn our salvation is complete. His mission to fill the table is not. And he gave us that mission. His mission to gather a people for himself from every nation and tribe and people and language, that we're going to see that picture in the, God, in the book of Revelation of that great wedding feast and that great worshiping crowd, people from every corner of the earth, that that's not done yet. And much to our surprise, if we think about it, if we're not familiar with the story, Jesus, after he did such a great work on the cross, said, now it's your turn. Now you get to take that news of who I am and what I've done to bring people home back in relationship with God and you get to take it to the corners of the globe and you get to fill the table. And that's our job. And it kind of answers that question of why are we still here? <laughs> because if Jesus came and earned our salvation and has done everything to bring us home, I want to go home. 
If there's this great wedding feast and there's this great table, I'm ready for it. I love my life. I love my wife. I love my family. I don't really love my house because I'm remodeling it. Um, but, but overall, you know, life has been good to me. But that future home of perfection that Jeff talked about last week, where I'm removed from the sin in the world and the sin in myself, and I'm brought into intimacy with God, I'm longing for that. That is so much better than what I've got going right now. Why are we here? And I can only think of two reasons. The first one I'm not really going to talk about today, but I just want to plan a splinter in your mind for later. The first reason is we get to do now something we'll never get to do again in all of eternity. And that is worship and love and trust God while we're in a sinful, fallen world and while things aren't right. Because once we go to be with Christ, everything is made right and we we live by faith now and then we'll live by sight. And we'll know and love God and experience his grace and we'll be made whole and we'll be freed from the sin in the world and the sin in ourselves. But right now we live in a world of heartache and trouble and hardship and yet we can love God, surrender to him, delight in him in a way that is supremely honoring to him because we're doing it by faith, not by sight. So that's the first reason, done talking about that. The second reason is, again, what I've been saying, the table's not full. The message hasn't been delivered fully yet. And there's still people that God wants to bring to his table, and it's time for the family gathering. There's still sons and daughters that God wishes to bring to his table. And he's given us, as his sons and daughters, that task of bringing them together. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to stand and read our passage. Father, please help us to understand your word today. Help us to uh, go deeper into it in our heads and also in our hearts, even though it's a familiar passage. Convict us, speak to us, change us, mobilize us, equip us. God, make us yours. Make us this loving family that is also a spiritual army that will complete the mission that you started and that you have handed off to us, we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. You know this passage as the Great Commission. Hopefully it's a very familiar passage. Hopefully you've heard it taught about a lot here at Faith Church and other places that you've been. I hope to do a quick review of it as well as hopefully have a couple of insights that maybe you haven't thought about before. Let me begin by reading it. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I want to go through the nuts and bolts of this Great Commission, five different words that I think help us describe it and understand it before then going in two different directions at the end to just give you a little bit of a heads up where I'm going here today. And these five words, the first one is intentional. That this great commission that God has given to us is something that is to be done deliberately, intentionally, uh, persistently with care. 
So why do I say that? Well, you've probably heard, if you've been around here long, about the different verbs that are in this passage. There's four of them, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. Now the central one is make disciples, and Matthew made that really clear to us the way that he wrote this. That is the one that is in an imperative command voice. So it's an order. It's something that's not negotiable. The command is make disciples. And that's what the rest of the verse hangs on. That's what it's all about. The other three verbs are participles, words that in English end with ing. Going, baptizing, teaching. They all support that central command to make disciples. And so you may have heard this you know, referred to as the as-you-go commission. As-you-go, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. I think sometimes too much is made of the fact that these are participles and support the main command, and sometimes too little. When it's too little, you'll hear this verse used as simply go, period. You know, and that, that the point of this verse is wherever you are, that's not good enough. You need to leave and go somewhere else in order to do what God has called you to do rather than doing it where you're at. On the other side of it, I think we make too much of it sometimes like the As You Go Commission. I think there was actually a book about that. And it's as if wherever you are, that's good enough, and you just follow God wherever you are, and you just do the make disciple things there. And it loses some grammar that's really important in Greek. When you put that participle right next to that command, going and make disciples, really close, there's just the and connecting them, it borrows that force of the imperative of the command. That's why every single translation you've ever read, I would imagine, says, go and make disciples. It renders go as a command, just like make disciples. And that's how we're to understand it. And it's to tell us that this is intentional. This is deliberate. This is sometimes sacrificial. This involves an intentional mindset where, you are, mindset where you are now, and sometimes God directs us to places and people that we don't intentionally go to, but it's pretty clear in hindsight that he put us there. We're supposed to live out that command there to make disciples, and we're supposed to be willing to look at the globe, to look at our neighborhood, to look at our city, to look at our nation, and say, where is their need, and how do we make sure this message goes there? How do we make disciples there? It's intentional, it's deliberate, it's often sacrificial to follow this command. Second word, it's global. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The picture that Revelation gives to us of this great assembly, this great worshiping people, this, this banquet that will include all of these people has four key words in it that God is redeeming people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and crying out in worship. That is the great picture of what we're calling the metaphor of the table. And it has people from every people group globally. And that, as you know, is, you know, we'd use the word local now. That's coming to our doorstep, that there's people from all over the world right here in Nora, right in your neighborhoods. But it also means we're to go into every corner of the world with this message. Third word, 
comprehensive. Intentional, global, comprehensive. It's got two supporting verbs following the command, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the next one is teaching, teaching them to obey. Now, you can't say baptizing without clearly implying evangelism, without implying conversion, without implying establishing someone new in the faith of what it means to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. That baptizing is is dipping into water that symbolizes Christ's life counting for us, Christ's death counting for us, of symbolizing Christ's resurrection counting for us. It's how we establish people in the faith and begin that process of bringing them into maturity in Christ and new creation. And teaching them to obey is all about, after that, bringing them more and more into the image of Christ. And it's one of these little things I won't elaborate too long on today, but it's not just teaching them. We wish it was. Content is so much easier to pass on and we can measure it by making you take tests, and that's what school is like. This isn't just teaching content, this is transformation. Teaching them to observe, to obey, to live out all that I've commanded. In other words, discipleship is supposed to change you. It's supposed to transform your life and your thoughts and your actions and your priorities, not just give you new content. So I think of like the medical field and how well that they not only teach content, but how they mentor, and I don't want to go into that, but they do an incredible job, and we could learn from them in the church. Intentional, global, comprehensive, how about dependent? The very beginning of this great commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and at the end he says, and surely, certainly, behold, I will be with you always. He didn't just send us out there alone. He isn't just sending us out there and sitting back in heaven and applauding when we do it right and frowning when we do it wrong and going, oh, you got yourself in a pickle now. He sends us out and he says, I'm going to empower you. This is my mission. I have the authority. I will be with you. I will empower you. And it's not just his presence to give us power, but it's personal. It's his mission that he will be present with us in the hardship, in the trial, in the sacrifice that it takes to live out this great command, this great commission. And so the last one then is enduring. Certainly I will be with you always to the end of the age. In other words, it's not done yet. Christ has not returned yet. We're not done with this task that he has given us as disciples, as his church. I think of Matthew 24 where Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Well, let's take a slow down and let's just look at this metaphor a little closer. And let's think of it in light of the table. In light of coming home in light of that mission, and in light of putting it into that storyline we've talked about of home and home lost and Jesus leaving his home and Jesus bringing us home. I think about this whole intentionality that comes with it. And it has to break God's heart that there's still empty seats at the table. See, to us, they're nameless, faceless people that we care about only as a generality. To God, they are sons and daughters that he has yet to bring back in relationship with him and bring home. 
And I think about my family in Cincinnati, and we've hit that stage in life where not everybody can be home all of the time, and it's so special when everybody is. And when I look around the table, I know who's not there. And I know who's missing, and I wish they were there. How much more so with God when he still knows there's empty seats at his table, and he wants us to care about it because he cares about it. He doesn't want us to be content that I've got my seat at the table so everything's good. He wants us to see what he sees, that there's empty seats. And he loves those that are missing still. And he wants us to care about that mission, be intentional, be sacrificial, because he is. It's global. You think of this priority of missions and the priority of people from every tongue and tribe and language and people group. And it begs questions like, how can we entertain racism in any way, shape, or form? It sure doesn't belong at this table. We're talking about a group of people that transcends culture and language and nationalities and barriers. And we're living in a world, not just in America, but globally, that's becoming increasingly ethnocentric. Take care of yourself, promote yourself, and lock out the threat. And yet that goes contrary to our call to take the gospel to all of the least of these in every corner and pocket of the world. Intentionally, sacrificially, it's global. And it's comprehensive. There's supposed to be kids at the table. Now, I didn't ask permission to share this story, so I might be getting in trouble right now. Joanne will tell me later. But at our Christmas meal at her house with her family, one of the nieces made a run for the adult table. Now, in the dining room, we, don't, we have too many people to make it on one table at her, her family's house, and mine too. But so the dining table was set up for the eight adults that were there, her parents and her two sisters and all of our husbands. And then we had tables set up in the basement for the kids. And it's a nice basement. Don't think dungeon. It's really finished. It's really cool. But all the, the, the younger generation was down there for this meal. And... Ooh, that niece, she was cunning. She made a run for the adult table, and it was on purpose. I know it. She was one of the first to get her food. We let the kids go first. She went in. She sat down, and she just watched and waited. Are they going to chase me out, or am I okay? And I looked, and I was like, there's eight seats. There's eight adults. Rats. Because I'm looking forward to catching up with Joe's folks and her sisters and their husbands, and this is a great time to talk. And instead, you know, we're talking about things that she's like the hub of the conversation, and we're talking about different things. And I was a little frustrated, to be honest, and Joe's mom and her sister were very gracious, and they went down to eat, eat with the teenagers and the younger generation, and I'm sure they were like, oh, great, now we've got to behave, they're here. So, you know, it was that kind of a dynamic. And then as I thought about it, I realized she has a place at the table. She belongs there. Let me ask you a question. Is that how you feel about church? Is church more comfortable when you're only with the adults at the table? The people who are like you? The people who are your level, roughly, spiritually? The people that you naturally share a sense of humor with? The people that have their act together and cleaned up? The people that you just easily get along with? Because we're kind of wired that way, aren't we, if we're honest? We like it when it's comfortable for us. And yet God wants to remind us that kids have a seat at the table. 
metaphorically, spiritually speaking. There needs to be people in our churches who are messy, who are new to this Christian thing, who haven't figured out yet all the ways that Christ is meant to change their life, who are doing those horrible things that you read about in the Bible, like in the book of Corinthians. If you read that letter, you're thinking, those letters, you're thinking, wow, that church is, wow, got problems. If we're not bringing in people who are messy, we're barring them from the adult table, and it's not God's table then. God wants this table to be inclusive. You know, you think about what a real family table is like when you get away from the holidays and the romanticism of Thanksgiving and Christmas, and you've got crying infants, and you've got whiny young kids, and you have obnoxious teenagers, just saying it, and you have boring adults, just saying that too, and you have grumpy old people. Hey, we're all under the bus on this one, right? And yet when the family is healthy, and it's the way God's supposed to have it, you have infants who are a delight and a joy. And you have kids who are energetic and full of wonder and joy and bring just such contagiousness to the room. And you have teenagers and adults and grandparents who love to be together and who love to share life and talk through all of those things. That's the way the table's supposed to be. That's the way the church is supposed to be. That's what our mission is. Baptizing through maturity, through teaching to obey. And it's supposed to be dependent. I think about the table metaphor, and it's usually the parents' table, and they usually do most of the work, and we bring our help and we contribute. But it's really about that. And it's God's table. And he'll ask us to chip in, and he'll ask us to sacrifice, and he'll ask us to give the best of what we have. But ultimately, he's the one who earned our salvation and provides the feast. And it's an enduring mission, as I've said. There's still empty seats there's still loved ones who aren't seated yet, who are missing. And amazingly enough, Jesus has sent us on the rescue mission to bring that news to them and introduce them to him. I think sometimes God is not just delightfully surprising, but I say this in a respectful way, God is almost crazy sometimes. I look at the incarnation, I look at Jesus leaving his home, and I, that just blows my mind. And I look at how competent and wonderful and delightful Jesus is, and yet he gives us the mission of bringing the gospel to the world. And I'm like, you could do a better job, Jesus, if I'm not in the way. And he says, I want to do it in you and through you, all of you, to reach every corner of the globe. Now let's take a time out for a second here. And I want to go back and use three pictures um, that help me illustrate how we should read the Gospels. And, and because it's going to be really relevant for the last two points, I think. And so these three pictures kind of help us just understand when we're reading it, how we think about the Gospels, how we apply it to our lives eventually. And the first one is of a window. And this is how we naturally think about the Gospels. They are a clear pane of glass through which we look to see Jesus. And we see how he lived and what he taught and what he said and how he interacted with sinners and with religious leaders and um, all of his teachings and his sermons. And, and we look through the Gospels to learn who Jesus is and what he did. Now, that makes good sense, right? That, that's an obvious one. Another obvious one is we use it like a mirror. We look into the Gospels and we read them and we say, God, what do you want to do in me? 
what do you want from me? What do you want to do through me? Who am I in light of this book that you've written, Matthew or Mark or Luke or John? But we often skip the second one, which is a little bit odd. The second one is stained glass, and it's to remind us of the church. And it's to remind us that Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew for a purpose, with an audience in mind. And he wrote it so that it would accomplish that with the disciples, with the church, with the followers of Christ that he was writing to. And it's why Matthew is different than Mark and is different than Luke and is different than John. So like you think about the Gospel of Mark and it's short and it's action-packed and it tells us stories of Jesus in very vivid detail. And you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us a lot of the exact same stories and even though Matthew is a lot longer than Mark, he shortens the stories. And takes out a lot of the vividness and the detail. But what Matthew does is he adds all of Jesus' sermons. Jesus' sermon on the mount, you know, dealing with morality. Jesus' sermon on mission. Jesus' sermon on the end times towards the end of Matthew. All of this different content that Mark doesn't have. They kind of are writing to different audiences with a different purpose and a different way of accomplishing it. And so just like when we're reading Paul and we're reading the letter to the Colossians, we realize they lived in a city called Colossae, or Philippians, they lived in Philippi, or Romans, they lived in Rome. And we can look at those, and we can look at those cities and figure out by what Paul says and who he's saying it to a lot of the context. We do that with the Gospels too. So as we're looking at this great commission, we are looking at Jesus through the window. And we are seeing this amazing thing that Jesus came to Through his life and substitutionary death and victorious resolution, he came to be our savior, to provide all necessary means to bring us home to God, and that work of his is complete and done. But his mission isn't. His mission is to bring home a people from every nation, tribe, and language. And he gave that mission to his disciples. He gave it to them rather doing it himself. He gave it to them so that he could do it in the Holy Spirit through them and multiply exponentially rather than him being the sole person who's proclaiming, come follow me. And so as we look at that in the mirror, we realize that's us, that's our job. But we also look at the Gospel of Matthew and how Matthew arranged his material and made this the climax And we'll get into that a little bit more. But Matthew could have just ended the gospel with the resurrection, right? That's the cool part. I mean, Jesus suffers and dies and the gospel slows down there and it has the longest block of material for the shortest period of time. And then he rises from the dead, is raised from the dead. And then it ends with this commission. And Matthew wanted the early church to see this was their task now. This is the job God gave through Jesus to the disciples and is now the priority for the church. Therefore, we look in the mirror and we say, this is still enduring and applicable for us. Now, I want to make two other observations here that are related to this. First is this. It's pretty easily overlooked. The Great Commission is inherently, necessarily connected to our own discipleship, to our own maturity, to our own walk with God, to our own seat at the table, if you will. This sounds like a detail, but hear me out here. We often skip the first two verses before the Great Commission. They say this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
That's one of these things that gives us a clue when we look at the window and we see Jesus and the disciples and when we look at Matthew and see Matthew and the church of how this is a priority. See, we go back in the Gospel of Matthew a little ways. Matthew 17, he gets his disciples together in Galilee and for the first time he tells them super clearly the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And then he will be raised to life. Now the disciples couldn't get this because a crucified Messiah to them was a contradiction in terms. So they couldn't even get past that, let alone to the part where he will be raised again to life. But that happens in Galilee. And then we go further, Matthew 26. This is right in the middle of the context of that great climax, the suffering and crucifixion of Christ. It's in the part of Matthew where Jesus is anointed by a woman in worship. And that's put up against Judas making arrangements to betray Jesus. And where Jesus is sharing the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's predicting Judas' betrayal, and he's also predicting Judas's disowning him and falling away. And then it says in verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And here we go. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. In other words, when this is all done, that's where I'm going. That's where I want you to meet me. Jesus is telling his disciples about this commission that is going to happen, telling them be there before he goes to the cross. After he goes to the cross and is crucified and then is raised from the dead, the women come to the tomb in Matthew 28. And they meet an angel, and the angel says to them, Don't be afraid. I know that you've come to seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And the next verses. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus is preparing his disciples all through this for what he's going to give them in Galilee, that his mission will become their mission. And Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. Matthew's laying all of these clues and remembering what Jesus did and putting it together in a way that tells his readers this is part of your discipleship. Matthew is written the way that it was so that people would understand who Jesus is in more fullness and come to maturity in him. That's why it has all of the sermons. In the early church, Matthew was used as a catechism. It was like the course book for new believers to learn what Jesus taught, what Jesus wanted, what he was like, what is required of you as a new follower of Christ, as a disciple of him. And this is the climax of that journey. This mission isn't optional. It's part of God's bringing you into the image of Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is not possible for you to become more like Christ, be formed in the image of Christ, which is the goal of discipleship, to think like him, to speak like him, to act like him, to have his priorities. You can't become more in the image of Christ unless you fall deeper into the mission of Christ. 
because that's who he was and what he was about. And he calls us not just to follow him and safely take our seat at the table, but to join him in his mission of bringing all nations to that table. Now, if I haven't meddled enough, let me go a little deeper. It's not just connected inherently to your discipleship. Those of you who are parents, it's connected to your kids' discipleship. Now we're meddling, right? See, I grew up in an age where we didn't even have car seats, you know, where we stayed out till 10 or 11 on Halloween, running around the neighborhood by ourselves. It's amazing, apparently, that I'm still alive, or that, that the human race continued. I don't know how it did. Because in today's culture, you are encouraged to bathe your children in hand sanitizer every time they come home from school, right? You want to take good care of them. You want to protect them. It's kind of built into who we are as parents. And we forget that God never said that following him would be safe. And God never said that becoming more like Jesus would involve less risk and more security. That just like you want to grow to be like Christ means you adopt his mission. If you are raising your kids to be like Christ, you're raising them to love him and embrace his mission even when it might break your heart. Even when it puts them in danger. Even when it exposes them to risk. His mission is part of our discipleship. And it's also part of our love. Let me go to the second one. Second point that I want to make is this. The Great Commission is inherently connected to our worship of Jesus as a son of man, as God, as king and judge. Now, I'm going to need to set this up really quickly, but in Daniel chapter 7, we read this awesome passage about where multiple thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And for centuries, Jewish scholars wondered how this could be. The Ancient of Days was clearly God Almighty in this passage, and yet more than one throne was set up those don't go together. Only God gets worshipped. He only needs one throne. And at the end of this passage, it talked about one like a son of man, in other words, who looked human, who was led into his presence and was given authority and glory and sovereign power and was worshipped. That's blasphemy. That makes no sense. How can anyone be worshipped except for God? And any human who comes into God's presence responds like Isaiah, on your face, aware of your sin and the holiness of God. And yet this son of man came in and is given authority and glory and worship. It's part of why Jesus called himself the son of man in the Gospels. It was a title that both concealed his identity by saying, I'm a normal human. It was a phrase that you could say that. And it was also revealing his identity saying, I'm that special Messiah who is more than you think the Messiah will be. More than just a political revolutionary, I'm the one who is equal with God the Father and worthy of worship and will rule with God the Father. Now, let me read this together, both of these passages, and let you see the connections between them. On this side, I'll read the Great Commission. On this side, I'll read Daniel 7. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Great Commission. Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now you may think I'm pushing that analogy But this passage is a very crucial backdrop to the entire Gospel of Matthew. So much so that it's the reason Jesus was crucified. Earlier in in Matthew, end of chapter 26, Jesus is standing on trial before the Sanhedrin. And they're bringing up witnesses and they can't put together a good argument against Jesus. They just can't convict him. And finally, the high priest in desperation says, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Tell us. And Jesus says, It is as you say, not only so, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he references and quotes Daniel 7. And they got it. They understood exactly where he was quoting from and exactly who he was saying he was. And the irony is that at the point in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus most clearly reveals his identity to the religious leaders is the basis on which they most fully reject him and condemn him of blasphemy and worthy to die. Let that sink in for a minute. They want to know who Jesus is. When he finally tells him, they say, you must die because you cannot be that person. So we see in all of this that missions exist Because worship doesn't. That Jesus is worthy of this table being full. And that the motivation to honor his commission that he's given us and take this message to the ends of the earth isn't the people who are going to be sitting at the table. We are supposed to love them, I know that, and we should. But if we don't know them and they're nameless and faceless, Or perhaps worse, we do know them and we think, well, man, you really are messed up and you really don't deserve grace. Well, Jesus does deserve to extend them grace. And by the way, how contradictory is that? You don't deserve grace. By definition, you don't deserve grace. That's why it's grace. But somehow we're able to look at other people and feel like we've kind of got it together and God forgives us and that's all really good, but you, Hitler whoever it is that you're thinking of as that ultimate evil person, you don't deserve grace. You don't deserve grace any more than Hitler does. No one deserves grace. That's why it's grace. And we aren't motivated because of the worthiness of the people we take the gospel to. We're motivated by the worthiness of the Son of Man who gave his life, who left his home, who suffered and died and was raised from the dead to bring a people to himself. He's the one worthy of the table being full. And when all other motivations run out, that's the one enduring motivation that'll move us, that'll cause us to sacrifice, to go, to give, to release our kids, to pay great prices to see that gospel be spread. So as we think about this and bring it all home, as we look at the table, 
I just want you to really think about a couple things. Tough questions. Do we really care? That's a tough one. When we think of our discipleship and growth and maturity, if we're honest with ourselves, ask this question. Do I just want my seat at the table? Do I want to only sit at the adult table? Do I want a form of spirituality that's really not very different than Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization that I want to be happy and I want to be mature and I want to be complete and I want to have joy and I find that in the gospel. I don't really want to sacrifice and I don't want to be messy. I don't want to embrace the fact that getting closer to Jesus means getting closer to his mission and that as he suffered, he might call me to suffer. Do we really want to worship Christ, love him, serve him with all of our hearts, but not embrace his mission? Is that even possible, to really love Christ and not love his mission? Will we care about people groups we've never met? Or will we just want an as-you-go commission? So I'll be ready. If somebody knocks on my door and says, tell me how to come to know Christ, I'm ready. I'll tell you that. That's great. Or I'll call somebody who can. But don't ask me to sacrifice God. Don't ask me to change my time my financial priorities, my career, my vision and future for the future of my kids? Will we care about the people that are messy, who need nurturing and patient mentoring and teaching and life transformation that just doesn't happen quick and easy? Will we care enough to abide in Christ, trusting that Apart from him, we can do nothing, but if we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. And reminding ourselves it's his table, it's his commission, it's his promise to be with us and do this. When I talk about all these things, what I don't want you to hear is condemnation. What I want you to hear is invitation. See, some of you are like me. You know, we, we make fun of people centuries ago who, like, did the whole self-punishment stuff as part of their spiritual maturity. Excuse me, I have to cough there. And yet we emotionally do the same thing to ourselves. Some of you are beating yourselves up for opportunities that you've missed and for a lack of commitment or devotion that you see in yourself. I want you to see invitation. This is the chance to do something with your life that matters forever. This isn't just helping somebody short term. This is changing their eternity. And let me tell you, there is nothing that will be more rewarding for you than that. No amount of money that you can make, no career advancements, no inventions, no anything that you do with your life will surpass knowing you've changed someone's eternity. And I say that humbly, knowing that God's the only one who really changes hearts. He's the one who does it. I think back to a mission trip that I did a long time ago. We saw a lot of people come to know Christ. I didn't know how to articulate what I felt until I kind of sorted it out. It's like, God, you know you're the one who did all of that, but I want you to know I love it when you do that through me. You're the one who did it, but man, what a privilege to do it. So a lot of you know Mark West. Hi, Mark. You didn't know I was going to do this. 
ask him about Peru and being with Philip Bubin and going out sharing the gospel with our translator and the translator having trouble being able to translate the gospel and them taking her aside and saying, hey, can we talk this through so you can understand it better and translate it better and talking through the gospel with her and finding out she didn't know the gospel and she didn't know Christ and introducing her to a relationship with God and watching her flourish through that week and be incredibly effective at sharing the gospel with other people. Ask him about that. Ask him if he regrets taking time off from work for that trip or how much it costs him to go on it. Ask him, I dare you. Ask me about Arson in Central Asia, who I've prayed for for about 30 years after seeing the team that I was with lead him to Christ. Ask me about the girl in Chicago, who when I'm asking her, if you were to die and you're standing before God and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven, what would I say? And she didn't know what to say and she gave some answers and she realized those weren't good answers. She looked at me and goes, well, what would you say? Oh, what a great question. And I got to tell her, and I got to watch the lights go on in her eyes. Ask me if I regret spending a week away from home and my young kids at that time to be in Chicago with a bunch of students to do that. I look around this church, I see people who... I got to play an instrumental role of sharing the gospel with you. I got to sometimes help other people play that role of sharing the gospel with you. Guys, this is the stuff that life is about. And there's no other substitute that will give you the kind of joy and satisfaction and delight as seeing God do what only he can do, fill the table. But use you to do it? That's awesome. So I don't know what your application is. Maybe it's time for you to get back to the nuts and bolts of how would I explain the gospel to somebody if they rang the door. you got all kinds of opportunities here at this church to learn how to do that. Take them. Maybe it's some person that you're praying for and you need to go invite them to dinner. Maybe it's a friend at school that you need to listen to their problems and you need to ask some questions that are risky and you know they're risky when you ask them and open the door for a conversation about God. It'll be worth it even when it's hard. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son. Thank you that through him, we've been brought to the table, that he left his home. Help us to be willing to sacrifice following his example. Help us to be able to love following his example. Most of all, God, empower us through Christ and just give us a passion to exalt him that will take us past any of those barriers that might keep us away from it. We love you. You are worthy of this, and so we pray that you'll do it in us. Amen. Why don't we stand together? Uh, Pastor Don, that was awesome. I appreciate you coming today and sharing with our church family. Um, man, that message really got to me as we think through a lot of us right now or you know, maybe thinking about what kind of goals to set for the coming year. But man, I got to say, uh, with what Don said, this matters forever. Something I almost want to put on a t-shirt. But think about that as you go, guys go into 2018, about the people you interact with daily, uh, the people that live around you. 
the ways that you can impact them um, through just a cup of coffee and how that leads to something that lasts forever. Um, so may that be our prayer, and may we sing this song together with that urgency in our hearts. For the cause of Christ, we give our lives an offering, and that all the nations would come to know our Savior. <laughs>